And in this particular part of the scripture, it's between the, the uh, children of Israel coming into the promised land with Joshua and the monarchy coming into place with Israel. So it's in that period in between when they're in the land, but they don't yet have a king. God himself is their king as he has wanted to be. But in this series of the book of Judges, if you read through it, you'll notice that there's a, a cycle, a, a deep and dark cycle that um, really makes us angst for the people. Uh, we recognize this disastrous cycle of apostasy where they uh, deny God, they start to take on the worship of other gods, the gods of the Canaanites of the region, and they start to spiritually whore after them. And God comes against them with great discipline by the nations around them or the people groups around them that come against them in, in a great adversarial way. And uh, when he oppresses them through their enemies, then they cry out to him, they repent and they cry out to him and they turn away from their idolatrous ways. They turn back to God and God has wooed them back to himself. And in doing so, he comes to them and repent in, with mercy and extends grace to them but that disastrous cycle repeats itself over and over and over in fact there's no less than seven of them those cycles in the book of Judges it might take 20 years it might take 40 years but they're cycles that just continue so when you're reading the book of Judges you feel a sense of disappointment for the people of God as they are moving away from him and he is imposing on them great oppression through discipline and still the, uh, the focus that we have of disappointment is not just for the people of God that we're reading about in, about in Israel, but we're reading about that in our own heart, in our own lives. We recognize we too find ourselves and it would make us to be born again from above. I can't help but see the similarities that the Apostle Paul was feeling when he was writing the book of Romans, which to me comes at a really a climactic point in the seventh chapter as he's moving to that glorious chapter eight. But in the seventh chapter, he writes, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And there's where we find Israel. God is close at hand, but evil as well is there around them, surrounding them. Paul says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So it says, inside, I want to do this, which God is pleased with his law, which is holy and right. But he finds in his flesh, in the members of his body, he finds this wrestling, this struggling, because their sin resides. And he says in conclusion, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to deliver me from this which comes against me in my body? And he gives the answer in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus breaks the sin cycles. He breaks it by making us to be born again, born anew, and dwells us by his spirit and gives us a new nature and everything is reset in him. So there is great hope in the mercy and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who transforms us to newness of life when we are born again. But now when reading the woes of, of judges, we see God's provision and of sin that, that he is giving to them, providing grace and deliverance through various judges that he raises up. So as the namesake of the book says, 
God delivers the people by raising up judges. Gideon is one of those judges. Now, remember, they are a forerunner, if you will, of the Messiah, the ultimate judge, the one who is altogether righteous. And so all these judges that we're reading about in the book of Judges are pointing us ultimately to Jesus Christ, who will save and deliver us eternally. But today I want to focus in on this one, Gideon, a judge that God has raised from obscurity, developing him to an extraordinary leader. I'm given to Gideon because he's, he's one that nobody saw coming. Uh, he's sort of like the runt of the clan, if you will. In fact, he sees himself as that way, and he is going to help deliver the people uh, by God's great movement through him. Now, as I'm telling you the story today, I'm hoping that you'll see a, uh, evidence of God working in those who are uh, not identified by the community or the family or even self but identified by God and raised up by God. And I want you to see yourself as one of those who God has raised up to do his mighty work. The Lord will raise us to such a height. Now I'm gonna to have to give you a, a little bird's eye view for a moment. In Judges chapter two, chapter three, and chapter four, there is a statement that is reoccurring. And it, it helps us to identify what is going on in the heart and lives of the people. And the statement is found in chapter 4, verse 1, as it was in chapter 2 and 3. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's a summary of the heart of the people. They just had this inclination to do evil. And uh, they, they give themselves over to that evil. In each of those periods, the anger of the Lord has burned against them. And he gives them over to plunderers and sold them into the hands of their enemies until they cried out for repentance. Now, by the end of Judges 4, there's a woman who is raised up to be judge. Her name is Deborah, and she is leading the people to have victory over the Canaanites who have cruelly oppressed them for 20 years. And Judges 5 gives us this wonderful song, the song of Deborah, which is very unique in its historical view that God had given the people over to the Canaanites but then gave victory to them when they repented. And the chapter ends with a very profound statement, and the land rested for 40 years. Now that one little sentence tells us that as Deborah has led the people back in a revival to the Lord and God has given them victory over their enemies, the land rested for 40 years. So here's a whole generation that was seeking after the will and the way of God, who was seeking after the things of God. But as you turn to chapter six, where I'm gonna focus today, you'll see that they go right back into this cycle of sin and idolatry. The people of Israel, chapter six, verse one, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now you have it in chapter two, three, four, and six, the same thing. They do what is evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord gave them over to the hand of the Midians, the Midianites, and he does this for seven years. They are oppressed by them, not just the Midianites, but the Amalekites as well. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. I've seen those. You go into the mountainous regions and there's all kinds of caves. You go uh, into uh, all kinds of 
areas that you could hide out, big cavernous areas that people would hide out. That's exactly what they've had to do. For whenever Israel, the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them and they would camp against them and devour the land, the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no substance in the Israel, no sheep, no oxen, no oxen, no donkey. So I mean, they're just taking everything. When it comes time for the harvest, they sweep in, they take the, the harvest, they take the animals as well, verse five, and they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in and Israel brought, was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now this sin cycle occurs no less than seven times as I've mentioned and I think he's showing us that this is the way of people. This is how people are. We have a tendency to try to get our lives right and then we circle back into the way of sin. Uh, we find this regularly. If you're not made new in Christ Jesus, you will stay in that place, this dark, sinful place. It, it's because you and I were born in sin. Now, I love my father. I think there's few men like my dad in the pursuit of Christ, but my dad is through and through a sinner. And so is his son, me. And so are my sons. And so are my grandsons. We are all born in sin. And except Jesus would rescue us from that plight, there would be no change whatsoever. So we find these cycles that come until we find one who could make us new, who could make us to be born again, who could give us a new nature, a new holy way of righteous living, not in our own way, but in his way. His accomplishment registered in our lives and given credit to us. So the people are in desperate need for this. They're in these vicious cycles of sin because they are sin hungry people prone to wonder and lust after the gods of this world now we find it impossible to break the sin cycles that plague us we are utterly helpless except that God would come and rescue us from that and bring lasting change to us so he does in Christ Jesus and then he demands that we walk in the way of holiness because he has given us the Holy Spirit who walks with us. He has given us his righteousness. So how does all this come about? Well, we know it comes about because Romans has declared it to us. We are delivered from this body of death through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the transformation. So Jesus brings that kind of change. Jesus took upon himself God's holy wrath that was against us, the judgment of God that was against us. Jesus paid that debt and forgave, forgave us of our sins. I'm talking about the sins of the past, of the present, and the future, declaring us to be righteous before a holy God. And that brings justification to our life. We don't justify ourselves before God, but Jesus declares our justification to God because he has removed our sin, bearing it on the cross and dying with it, and then gives us the imputed righteousness in which he has lived. That's the way this cycle breaks. 
By his spirit, we are born again, spiritually born from above, transformed in our heart and lives in our eternal destiny as well. He gives us this new holy nature. But now throughout the period of the book of Judges, God has extended mercy and grace to the people. Those are the foreshadows of Christ extending mercy and grace to us in perpetuity. So with the judges, he provides this temporary and limited sense, but now with Jesus, he gives it to us fully and eternally. So I beg you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to repent and to believe in him. Now in Judges 6, the writer tells us that the Israelites were brought low by the hands of the Midianites. We first see this note that they that they're brought low and we recognize this wasn't just the hand of the enemies of, of the people of Israel. This was God's hand that had come against them using the Midianites. So God has brought them to their lowly place. God has brought them the, to this sense of desperation. And you might say, well, why? Why did God do this? And the scripture tells us he did it because they did what was evil in his sight. And God is willing to do anything to bring them away from that evil to bring them to his holy self. The Midianites, this nomadic people who live throughout what is modern day Jordan and Syria and Iraq and Saudi Arabia, all those people to the east, still giving Israel trouble to this day. They have brought the people of Israel low and now Israel is living in the caves in the mountains, in the strongholds. That is not where God wanted them to live. God wanted them to live in the flourishing of the land. But yet they find themselves in this desperate place. When the harvest season comes, the Midianites, the Amalekites, they come with the harvest and they devour the land. The scripture says in verses three and five that they were so numerous that they were not able to be counted and they stripped the land as if they were locusts devouring the land. They left no substance in the land whatsoever taking all that was there. Now I want you to hear this. This was not a run of bad luck. This wasn't just enemies rising to take the land and to plunder the land. It wasn't just because they were evil, although they were. This was because God had come against his people. And God had come against his people in order that he might draw them back to himself. It wasn't a time for them to keep their head up. This wasn't a time for them to pull themselves together. It wasn't a time for them to attempt in their own strength to overcome their enemy. This was a time for them to repent and return to God. This is what God was doing, bringing them to a point of repentance and turning them back to himself. Now, Israel was gonna learn a huge lesson in this, and it's one that we should all hear and understand, that God will use whatever means necessary for his people to return to him. He longs for them so badly that he would do whatever it took in discipline to bring their heart back to him. You hear this as well in Hosea chapter six. Come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us and he has struck us down that he will bind us up. God wants to heal and God wants to bind so that people would be drawn close to him. Now, why did it take Israel seven years to come to this point? Seven seasons of plunder, 
seven seasons of hiding from their enemies being defeated by them I tell you I think it's because sin will cause us to be very slow to respond to God listen the longer you linger in your sin the slower you are to respond in repentance sin is not something you can play around with you and I ought to despise it so because it draws us away from the fellowship that we have with God the longer you stay in your sin the more hardened your heart and the more deaf your ears will be and the longer it will take for you to return to him so what a gracious opportunity for us to say oh Lord help me not to remain in my sin help me to repent and to walk with Jesus I think it takes a long time too because self-reliance restricts us from calling out to God I can get this I can handle this I can change this I can do it <laughs> oh if that were the case you would have already done it same way for me this is not something that we can do on our own we need Christ we need the victory of Christ and the wonder of his spirit in our lives so what's going on in your life that God is wanting you to cry out to him for what is it that God and his fingerprint is on your life that is causing you some tension, some struggle, some means by which you have to call out to him? What is that that he's saying, I don't want you to just ignore that any longer. I want you to come and return to me. Let the spirit of God teach you in this days. Now, here's some good news. God comes to us in our sin and rebellion. It's not like he's expecting us to come to him in our sin and rebellion. God comes to us. Well, what a difference that is from every religion that is followed on the planet. God in his holiness has seen us in our unholiness and he comes to us. He comes to where we are from his exalted state. He humbles himself and he dwells among us. He comes to where we are and he moves us to repentance, leading us out of our sin and our rebellion and calling us to belief, even giving us faith in order that we might believe, making way for our salvation. Now look and see what happens in Judges chapter six. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Now, God chose Gideon of all the people in Israel. God chose Gideon to be the one who would bring victory to this vast and mighty army that was coming against them perpetually. But Gideon sees himself as one who is weak. He's the runt, if you will. He's the weakest of all the, the, the clan of the tribe, which is the smallest tribe in all of Israel, Manasseh. He views himself as the least in his family. So here he is, the least of his family, the smallest of the tribes, and the weakest of all the clans in the tribe. So he, he is viewing himself in a much different way than God is viewing himself. Now, now notice what God is calling him. God is calling him a mighty man of valor. Obviously, God has a different view of Gideon than Gideon has of understanding of himself. God did not view Gideon in his current or present condition. 
Rather, he viewed him as he knew and called him to be. Now, that's a big point. God is not looking to call you from where you are, thinking that you're going to be able to do something incredible for the kingdom of God. No, he's calling you from where you are, calling you to himself, for he is doing something incredible in the kingdom of God. And he will use you in your place of weakness to do it. If you notice all the people who are followers of Christ, those who are listed to us in the New Testament, these are people that, people, that others thought, are these not Galileans? <laughs> are, are, is, is this not just a bunch of fishermen? Is he not a tax collector of all people? You see, God will use people like that. Don't discount God using you. If you're the smallest of your family and your family is the lowest in the community, I'm telling you, you're primed for God to say, you're the one I want. Why is that? Because he is most glorified there. He is most glorified there. I know I've told it a hundred times, but it's worthy to tell. I was the guy who was just getting by in school. I was the guy who had a very difficult time reading. I was the guy whose algebra teacher said, college is not for everybody. I was the guy whose parents pulled aside and said, you have to stop mumbling. Nobody can understand what you're saying. I was the guy. And why would God choose me to stand before you to declare his holy word? Because he is most glorified when he takes the weakest and brings them to the point of the strongest message to be delivered in all the world. He will use you. Listen, I'm telling you, if he will use me, he will use you unto his glory. And that's where Gideon was. He was this guy that nobody would have ever dreamed would lead to the victory that God had in store. But God is viewing him very differently than Gideon is viewing himself. He's viewing him in light of his call. He's viewing him in light of what God is about to do in his life by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is viewing him as he was fashioned in his mother's womb for this role. God views him in that timeless sense and God is viewing you in that timeless sense as well, knowing what he will accomplish to you. So God is viewing him correctly. Now, our current lack of position never limits God. Boy, I just hope that some of these statements will settle into your quiet spirit. That God is not limited to your current position. He's not limited to the way you view yourself. Your current lack of ability or position doesn't limit God. God is never limited by our self-identity at any given point in time. He is not limited by that. But in his timelessness, he sees us as we will be. And what are we? We are washed in the blood of the Lamb. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ our Lord. We have the joint heirship of him as our Savior and King. We have the Holy Spirit of the living God dwelling within us. We have his powerful word impregnating our life and our mouth with words of truth and life. That's the way God views us. Not in limited capacity, but in the great power and capacity of Christ and his spirit. 
So if Jesus has saved you, then God views you not in your waywardness, but in the holiness of Christ. If he is seeing you not in your timidity, but in the power of the spirit that he has given to you, then God is declaring to you like he declares in Gideon's life, oh mighty hero, you will be the one to accomplish my work. He said it of, to uh, Gideon, you mighty hero will save Israel. You will rescue them. So you and I have a choice. And the choice is we can view life as we understand it to be or we can view life from the eternal word of God. What does God declare me to be? You can view your life in any way other than the way Christ views you. But I'm telling you, you will fall desperately short. View yourself in the identity of Jesus Christ and the power of Christ and the power of his promises the treasure of being a son or daughter of the most high God one who has been commissioned to be on mission with that of Jesus Christ you and I have a choice I say choose the way of Christ you can either view yourself in light of your limited capacity and ability or you can view yourself as one who is a recipient of the very gifts of God who gives according to his riches and glory from heaven. So our impact and our mission will be only as large as our view and understanding of God and his kingdom and his word. So have a big view of God and you'll have a big impact in the ministry of God. Then verse 14 of Judges 6, and the Lord turned to him and said to him, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian do I not send you? So God has given him might and now he's telling him, go in this might of yours and you will rescue the people. I'm sending you, he's saying. Have I not sent you? Those whom God calls, he commissions and empowers. So commissioning is the mission of Christ has now been given to us and the spirit of Christ is empowering us to accomplish that. In our local area and around the world, that is what he has called us to do. So he's called us to his kingdom work, the very ministry of Christ. He has given us the indwelling of his spirit. He has empowered us to serve and to build up his church, and then he sends us out. Uh, we're gathering today and worshiping today. It's an important time that we do so. In Hebrews 10, it says, hey, don't not do that. That's important that we gather together. But then he is constantly sending us out, isn't he? Sending us out and having witness to people and taking stands for the word of God and being part of the ministry of Christ our Lord. So to accomplish God's call, we must view ourselves through the eyes of Christ identifying ourselves with him and trusting in his empowerment. That's where Gideon would need to settle into. Now, it's gonna take Gideon a while to settle into that truth. And it might take you a, a little while to settle into that truth. But what I enjoy when I'm reading about Gideon is Gideon is taking steps of faith. Now, they're small steps. And sometimes you wanna say, come on, Gideon, you got this. But you're reading it from the perspective of what you already know all about Gideon and the victory that's coming. Gideon didn't know all that. So he is growing in his faith. Listen, no matter where you are on this curve of faith, just go on to the next level. Take the next step. Seek the Lord further. Trust him more fully. 
Discover more of his promises to you and, and take a step into them. Don't, don't stop, don't linger, don't fall back. Just, just continue to take these steps. That's what Gideon was doing and that's what he's calling you to do. Go in this strength. He's commissioning us to do that. Have confidence in the indwelling of the spirit, the manifestation and this all sufficient word that God has given to us, this ever present attentiveness of Jesus Christ that goes with us. Now this happens in, in uh, verse 25 of chapter 6. And that night the Lord said to Gideon, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Now let's stop here for a minute. What brought the discipline of God into the land of Israel? It was the idolatry. They had pursued after the Baals. They had worshipped Asherah, the fertility uh, god, and they had served them and followed after them and rejected the God of Israel, Yahweh. And so the first thing that God is requiring of Gideon is, I want you to go and I want you to be repentant for the people and I want you to tear down the altar and I want you to cut down the Asherah pole. And I want you to take the, the bulls of your father and I want you to slaughter them and I want you to sacrifice to me. In other words, he's going to tear down the places of false worship and he's going to build up the right worship. And it's unto Yahweh. So uh, he says, tear those down and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with wood and of Asherah of the Asherah and you shall, that you shall cut down. Now the hilltop was the place where evil worship happened. If you go to Israel, even to this day, the highest places where a community have been, uh, you'll find that would be the, the place of false worship. And the relics of those are often still in the land. And this was the place where Baal and Asherah was worshiped. Uh, just to give you a little bit of, of reference, this is 300 years before Elijah. So we've been talking a lot about Elijah recently in these stories. So this is three centuries before. Uh, and they were dealing with this a long time, weren't they? And here he's bringing this down and he's putting in its stead the, the altar to the Lord to worship the Lord. So Gideon takes 10 men, servants, and they do as the Lord said. Now look in, in verse 27, the second part of this. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Now, you and I might take a moment and just say, now, nah, Gideon, what are you doing? Just go in there full throttle and get this thing done. Doesn't matter what's gonna happen. Let those guys come against you. God is for you. Who could be against you? But that's not often the way it works, does it? I mean, often we're saying, yes, Lord, but there's some timidity about us. I mean, you sense a prompting of the Spirit to speak to somebody about the name of Jesus Christ, to make the gospel known, and, and you and I are kind of dancing around trying to look for our place where we step into that conversation and share the gospel with them, and the whole time our heart is beating out of our chest and the blood pressure, we can feel it. We feel our face get flushed and we get nervous. We stumble over our words and we're just like Gideon, aren't we? But what does God call for us to do? Okay, in all that nervousness and all that timidity, 
Take the step of faith. Just take that step of faith. I love the fact that the Lord didn't get on to Gideon for doing this at night. Under the cover of darkness. He didn't chide him because he was timid. It was the way he had lived all of his life. But he took a step of faith. And he took 10 men. And in the middle of the night, he tears down that altar to Baal. And he pulls down the Asherah. And he starts the fire. And he worships the God. I um, am grateful that the Lord will take those evil places in our lives and transform them to some of the greatest ministry. Some of you have found that to be the case. What was your worst nightmare? What, what, what struck you so harshly has now become the great platform of your ministry. The things that you're so embarrassed over in your life, the thing, the one thing that you hope nobody would find out about, they found out about, and you turned from that, you repented from that, the Lord cleansed you of that and gave you a new way of thinking about that, and now that has become your greatest platform for ministry. You never dreamed that it would be that way. I love the fact that here, the darkest place in all the community has now become the brightest place to worship God. Gideon finds that to be the case. Our impact and mission will be as large as our view and understanding of God, and he will often take that understanding and view of God and apply it to the weakest place where we once were in our flesh. Though fearful, Gideon took his stand for God and he obediently tore down the community's altar and that false shrine and that place that had been sanctioned for false worship was now a place of holy worship. How do we, um, how do we step forward from this lesson with Gideon? How do, we, how do we walk in faith in those places in our life where we're less willing to walk away from I think Gideon helps us to realize that we ought to be willing first that we ought to be transparent I didn't go through the whole narrative you might read chapter 6 today sometime this afternoon but Gideon's really wrestling with this and he says Lord if this is really what you want me to do then, then show me this and if this is really what you want to do do it again but do it in this way and he's just putting out these fleeces if you will just testing the Lord He was willing, somewhat timid about it, somewhat confused about it, but willing to take a step. I would say that's where we ought to come. Be willing, be transparent with the Lord. He was very open about his fear. He was very open about his doubt. You be that. Have faith in God and his word. Take the steps of faith and understanding. And then you probably know the rest of the story beginning in verse 20, uh, 33 through 35. And all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east, they came together. They crossed the Jordan. They're camping in the valley of, the, of Jezreel. And you know they're coming against uh, Gideon. The Lord is standing there with Gideon. He's closed in the power of the Spirit. The, he sounds the trumpet as he has gathered the people like the Abizarites and the, uh, the people from Manasseh and uh, Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali all of them they've been gathered together and Gideon is now the leader 
And he has mustered together 32,000 people, which is not much compared to the 135,000 Midianites and Amalekites. 32,000 to 135,000. But yet the Lord says to him, Gideon, you have too many people for me to win this battle. If you win the battle with 32,000 over 135,000, the people are gonna say it's by their own strength that they've done this. So I want you to ask any of them who are fearful to go home. And 22,000 of them went home. And he says, you still have too many people for me to give you victory. So I want you to take them to the water and I want you to watch how they drink water. And anybody who puts their mouth to the water, I want you to send them home. And by the end of it all, Gideon only has 300 men. Now 300 against 135,000. Again, you've got to read the narrative. It's amazing. God gives them an overwhelming victory. God causes the, the battle to take place, and the enemy actually destroys themselves. Then Gideon and his 300 begin to call others and chase after those who were running away, and they destroyed the enemy during that season. And in the end, Gideon was a great hero. The people recognized that. Even the enemies of, of Israel said, Gideon looks like the son of a king. And the people wanted him to be their king. But Gideon wasn't called to be a king. Gideon was called to be a judge, a leader of the people, to give victory to them in the name of Jesus Christ. So he refused the kingship and said, God alone will be our king. Now, when we come to the conclusion of this, we have to say, who are the Gideons in this room? Who sees themselves as the smallest, the weakest, the most inappropriate, the most unable? Who views themselves in that way rather than as a son or a daughter of the Most High God who has been called to the kingdom service, commissioned with Jesus Christ? Who views themselves by saying, I can't without even considering what God can. And what would God say to you and me in that moment? Gideon turned out to be a great leader, didn't he? But he didn't start out that way. And many of you will be great leaders, great, strong leaders in the kingdom of God, but you're not starting out that way. But God is calling you. His spirit is empowering you. God has marvelous plans for each of you, calling us far beyond what our imagination and dream could ever be. For the young and old alike, I say, hear the call of God. Trust his word. Be strong in his empowerment and walk in it and live for his glory. And in the end, Christ will be greatly exalted. Let's turn that into a prayer. Father, give us fresh eyes to have vision of your work. Give us a new perspective of walking empowered by your spirit to know the strength of your word that is like a sword in our hand when we use it. To know the magnitude of living with the manifestation of the Holy Spirit as we serve your church and declare your name among the nations. Give us perspective, I pray. 
from the teenager to the elderly and anyone in between, I pray, Lord, you would raise up great Gideons to lead your people to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.